I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our main website. ClarkDeals.com is where you go to save money each and every day. Coming up in just a few minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment, a new data breach. Got to let you in on who's exposed, what kind of risk there is for you. It is a database with 160 plus million records. How about that? And coming up yet later, as the economy goes through a slowing phase and interest rates go down, there's an opportunity potentially for you to stash some money that has not really been an opportunity in more than 15 years. And I'm going to fill you in on place is not going to get you rich but a good parking space for some of your money so the uh the 737 max continues to be grounded and it's been very difficult for boeing to fix the problems with the max and the the fixes have been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and so The FAA, having blown its credibility by not doing proper oversight of the design and manufacture of the MAX, is now relying on a world panel to come back with recommendations on what should be done to make the MAX safe to fly again. And so for now, there is no date for resuming service. And it's affecting you and me as consumers in a most unusual way. Airfares are actually higher than they would have been otherwise if the MAX had not been grounded. Uh, And the effect on airlines is significant. Southwest Airlines, which is the largest operator of 737s in the world, was a huge customer for the MAX. At this point, they probably would have had as many as 80 in their fleet. They have the ones they had already taken delivery of that are sitting in the desert, costing money just to mothball until whenever the MAX is found to be operable again. So Southwest has not been flying as many seats as they would have otherwise. And a lot of times when you go look at Southwest fares, they lately have been higher Southwest, as a mid-price airlines, they've been higher when you look for fares for specific dates than even with the three full fare airlines on a lot of routes, American, United, and Delta. And Southwest, their big initiative was flying to Hawaii, but they didn't have the planes to do so. So push came to shove, and Southwest has decided to discontinue a number of routes that were not very profitable and moved the aircraft that were used for those to more flying for Hawaii. So there's three parts to this story. One is it set off a lot of great deals from the West Coast to Hawaii again. Fares last week were briefly as little as 198 round trip from various markets on the West Coast to various places in the Hawaiian Islands. And let me tell you, that's a great deal. And in Hawaii, 
You can sleep on the beach if you want for free, which you see so many people, so many bargain travelers from the West Coast who will go to Hawaii with a tent and sleeping bag, and they rough it on the beach and go on a very inexpensive trip to paradise. I am not sleeping in a tent on the beach. But it it's weird because Southwest has led to these much lower fares to Hawaii on everybody because people have had to react. And then the markets they're leaving because of the plane being grounded means that in these markets they're leaving, fares go higher. Like out of Los Angeles, they aren't going to fly to Cancun, Puerto Vallarta anymore. They aren't going to fly to Pittsburgh or Omaha, out of Boston, no more Atlanta, no more Kansas City, no more Milwaukee. Now to Dallas, they dumped Oklahoma City, Jacksonville, San Francisco. They dumped some cities out of Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, New York, Columbus, and Austin, Texas. And so this is the kind of thing that would not have happened if it weren't for the grounding of the MAX. At American Airlines, which flies the second largest, or flew, the second largest number of MAXs in the U.S. It's led to some disruptions, some last-minute flight cancellations. American seems to have gotten that together. And United, which had the smallest number of MAXs of airlines that were flying them in the U.S., it has led to very little disruption there. But Southwest, which there's something known as the Southwest effect, which is when Southwest enters a market, the fares in that market permanently go down. They drop significant when they enter a market, and then they stay down moving forward. There is a reverse Southwest effect that people will see in these markets where Southwest is canceling service, and that is that fares go up. Uh, I forgot to mention Southwest is completely leaving Newark Airport. And anybody who's ever flown to Newark, you never want to be at Newark Airport. But Southwest, you know, it it was not uh, a profitable location for them, apparently. And so they pulled out. So that means then United, the dominant carrier there, can push fares up higher in the markets where Southwest provided competition. So that is the effect. But all this we're talking about is just money compared to people dying because of an unsafe aircraft. I mean, that's the real issue here. And I'm so glad that the process of bringing the MAX into the air is going to involve regulators around the world since the FAA has zero credibility anymore. The FAA used to be the gold standard. And it's a it's a sign of the corruption in Washington that the FAA became what's known as a captive regulator, that they thought their job was to serve Boeing instead of to serve the American people and make sure that the aircraft that we fly on were safe to fly on. Instead, they look the other way with a number of moves by Boeing that created an unsafe airplane unsafe environment for pilots, and unsafe for passengers as well. This has got to be done right before that plane goes back in the sky. Tim is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tim. Hello, how are you? Great, thank you, Tim. How can I be of service to you? 
Well, Clark, I was wondering, um, when applying for an applica- uh, uh, job, the application sometimes asks for Social Security number. And I know in the past on some of your broadcasts, you've always said, like, doctor's offices and things like that, never put your Social Security number on there. So prior to getting the job, you know, I could understand once hired, you need the Social Security number and so forth. So how about prior to that? Yeah, I am totally opposed to employers asking for a social security number when they're still in the screening process. And it's a reckless thing on the part of employers because it opens them up to tremendous liability when they ask for a social security number early in the screening process of a potential new hire. Because if with all the data hacks, all the all the problems that happen with personal information that companies collect in various ways, they end up creating a problem for themselves and for you by having for job applicants social security numbers at an early stage before you've made, let's say, the first cut or second cut. Sure. So I, I'm, I really don't understand why employers ask for social security numbers and i'm particularly worried about when you go to an online job source and and just to put in an initial application to be considered for screening for a job you're asked for your social security number and you're putting yourself between a rock and a hard place if you give that social security number on that initial application for a job. Yes. How would you suggest navigating around that? So I I don't know what best to tell you because this has come up with questions from others. So I can only tell you the risk reward quotient. So sure. if you don't put the social security number down, this system will probably kick you out, won't even consider you for the next level of screening for a job. So you know that with certainty, you're eliminated from consideration for that job. On the other hand, if you put the social security number down, it gets you into the process of making it through that first screening, but it then creates a risk that at some point you might be subject to a data breach that would happen to that employer and a crook has everything they need to take over your identity. So you got one thing that's a certainty. They won't even consider your application. And the other, a possibility that they have a data breach. So you've got to make that call for yourself. Yeah, well, fortunately, I I am still employed. So I was just trying to, um, you know, seek, you know, better options for myself. But I'm... I'm not un, unhappy where I am. I just like to better myself. So Understood but, uh, completely. So I, I, I would say in your circumstance, it would probably be an unnecessary risk for you to take. Becky is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Becky. Hey, Clark. Becky, you have a question for me that has puzzled people ever since the idea of longevity insurance came about. Will you define for your fellow listener what longevity insurance is? 
Well, my understanding is that it's something you purchase ahead of time so that when you reach a certain age, you have that defined income to count on for the rest of your days. That is right. And usually people buy longevity insurance in their um, 60s, early to mid-60s, for payment of income for the rest of your life when you hit typically your 80th or 85th birthday. Correct. So the idea of longevity insurance is that you pay for the policy, the insurer will pay you a, a massive monthly benefit if you make it to age 80 or 85 because they're counting on so many of the people who bought it will they pass away before they hit 80 or 85. Right. Now, is there a, a best time to buy it? You know, obviously, if you get a health thing that comes up and you think maybe you're not going to make it that long, yeah, so, <laughs> you waste that money. So usually people buy it uh, at the point that they're approaching retirement or they're getting ready to enter retirement. And that's why most often it's bought between age 60 and 65. Okay. And so if you buy it at 60 and don't have a benefit kick into 85, the premium's very cheap. If you buy it at 65, let's say, and you want the benefit to start at age 80, the premium's a fair amount higher because the insurer only gets to live on your money 15 years before they might have to start paying you. Okay, so the longer you wait or the closer you are to when you want to start getting it, the more the premium's going to go up. Exactly. But the okay. idea of it is awesome because it's so hard to know how long we're going to live, right? So right. you're trying to figure out, well, I can only spend this much every month on my life because I don't want to run out of money before I pass away. And so the beauty of longevity insurance is you know your money only has to last till that exact moment you turn 80 or 85. And then after that, the insurance company pays essentially for all your living expenses. Okay. So I... I really like longevity insurance as a way of making it easier for people to figure out and budget life's expenses when they are in the first part of retirement up till, you know, when we're young old to medium old. And then if we live old, old, the insurance company is the one essentially paying us a pension check every month for as long as we do live. The data breaches just keep on keeping on, don't they? Well, a new one is the topic of today's Clark Rageous Moment. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. Okay, so get this Movie Pass, which broke the hearts of so many movie lovers, that Movie Pass had this unlimited movie pass that people loved. Till it didn't work anymore. Well, MoviePass is now subject to a data breach, according to TechCrunch, that was a database that was not password protected. Can you believe this? Not password protected. That had 161 million records. And who knows how many. So far, they only guessed 60,000 contained customers credit card data we don't know who those customers are of the 161 million data files i don't know how they have 161 million data files they didn't have anywhere near that number of customers but 
if you were a MoviePass subscriber, you need to watch activity closely on the credit card that you used for MoviePass. And if you used a debit card for MoviePass, the risk to you with the money in your checking account is great. You might consider getting a new debit card number from your financial institution. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our main website. ClarkDeals.com is where you go to save money each and every day. If you are a long, long, long time listener to our show, I mean long time listener, you would have heard me way back in the 1990s up till early in the 2000s talk about a particular savings bond called the Series I savings bond. There are people who bought them many decades ago, back when I was first talking about the Series I savings bonds, that have earned fantastic rates of interest all through these years. When you buy them, you have to own them for a year, but you can keep them as long as 30 years, and you keep earning the interest. Well, early in, I guess it was maybe 2002 or three or something, the federal government decided people were getting too good a deal in them and basically made them worthless for people to buy moving forward. And so I stopped talking about them more than 15 years ago. Fast forward to today, and uh, economy slowing around the world, the odds of us going into a recession rising, and interest rates headed down, suddenly Series I savings bonds are potentially a good place for you to stash cash again. The I stands for inflation. And we are in an unusual position right now because of the distortions to our economy from the tariffs that at the same time the economy is slowing, inflation in a lot of sectors of the economy is rising simultaneously. Series I savings bonds pay you two ways. There's a base rate you get just for breathing, which is half a percent, which is not anything to jump for joy about, except that most savings accounts people might go into don't even pay half a percent. And you get that half a percent plus the rate of inflation in the U.S. economy reset every six months. So right now, these are paying 1.9% which again is not a huge amount of money to earn, but as interest rates drop, this this 0.5 is set for as long as you own it, plus you get whatever the inflation rate is. So you don't have to worry about falling behind inflation. You're actually ahead of it by half a point, whatever inflation would be each year. So you're allowed to buy $10,000 of these, up to $10,000 of these, each year and for per person. And you can buy as little as, I think $50 is the minimum you can buy. So they're very flexible in how much or how little you buy up to 
that $10,000. And then twice a year, what you earn resets. And you can see how these work, how to buy them, really easy. If you go to treasurydirect.gov, again, that's treasurydirect.gov, and then click on iBonds, and it's actually for government stuff. It's written in something approximating English. In fact, it's clearer and easier to understand than most stuff you get from investment companies. And you'll see how to put this money in there. So putting money in an I-bond is not investing. It's a method of savings. And it gives you a way of knowing something really important, and that is that inflation isn't eating you up. You're kicking past inflation. Michael is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Michael. Hello, Clark. I have a question about credit cards. All right. I am a college student living off student loans. I have no other debt and pay off my credit cards in full each month. I regularly get new credit card offers in the mail with tantalizing welcome bonuses. And as long as I don't increase my spending, is there a downside to theoretically applying for a new card every three months in order to cash in on those bonuses? If you are seeing great bonuses from card issuers, then you want to grab them. You know, the, the um, bonus wars have pretty much wound down. The credit card companies are not offering the mega bonuses that they were as recently as two years ago. But every once in a while, there will be one that pops up that's really good. Like right now, Hilton Hotels has been doing ones that offer a huge number of points at sign-up. And there will be things like that that happen. Or you'll get an offer where you might get, if you charge such a volume in three or four months, you might get several hundred dollars in money that comes back to you. What kind of things are you seeing that make it worth doing a bonus award card? Well, I, I was able to take advantage of the, the high bonuses two years ago, as you say, but more as a hobby than a huge cash reward like um, some of the ones that even are on the, the website Clark Deals that are $150, say, back if you spend $500, something like that. Um, obviously, it's not a huge amount, but just kind of fun as a hobby to claim that you you got this free money. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's fine. And so the thing you should know is you want to be careful applying for too many. You said one every 90 days. I'd say you stay out of any real difficulty with what happens with your credit scoring if you do, let's say, three a year instead of four that's a year. A, that's actually exactly why I'm, why I'm calling and what my question is. Does it hurt my credit score to now have this um, potentially huge line of credit that I'm not utilizing? No, actually, that raises your score eventually. It's one of the tricks of the trade with credit scoring is that initially with credit scoring, when you apply for a card, it reduces your score a little bit. But over time, having that available credit will actually raise your score, and the amount of your available credit ultimately accounts for 30% of what makes up your credit score. So if you get more credit, 
you might lose uh, 12, 15, 20 points for a while. But then what you'll get back is you'll get back the potential for a part of your credit score that's 200 and something points. You're able to give that a booster shot by reducing what's known as your utilization ratio. If you want the highest possible score, you use 5% or less of your available credit. Okay. And the, the other factor going into this is some of these cards have annual fees. If I close the account, how do I balance the, the, um, the benefit versus the, um, the decrease in the score from closing the account? Okay, that's a wonderful question. That? So I call that, um, you know, where you're hopscotching with your cards, where you rotate in a new one and then close the old one so that you keep the headroom of available credit in your mix. And so okay. if you were getting a reward by getting one with an annual fee, maybe you replace it when it's time for that annual fee again with a card that has no annual fee but also has nice rewards. Uh, as you may have heard me speak about, the two re cash reward cards that I really like that have no annual fee the city double cash card and the fidelity investments credit cards that all pay a flat two percent cash back for everything you do they don't have the fancy sign up bonuses but they're great over time steve is with us on the clark howard show hi steve hi there it's a pleasure to talk to you today well great to have you here and uh, you want to talk uh, we just talked with a college student you want to talk about your college student yeah, I've got a 20-year-old son who is in engineering school. I'm very proud of him. Um, and he's working a third shift job in a warehouse. And in that warehouse, he makes a, a really nice livable wage. I mean, if he didn't go to school, he could live on that. And wait, so wait, 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 wait. So your son is working graveyard shift, working full-time and is a full-time college student? Full-time engineering college student, yes. Oh, yeah, this very... is my kind of person. But he's got all this money now, and he's spending it faster than he's got it. And, of course, I've talked to him about budgeting, and I've talked to him about, you know, when you get out of school, you're going to want a home. Um, you're going to want to start thinking about, you know, retirement. Um, so he's not doing that. He went out, and he's got two older German high-end vehicles. One's a sports car that he's not able to drive in the winter because I live up north. So he's going to have to pay to store it. He's a 20-year-old male, so he's the highest to insure. He pays almost $3,000 a year just to insure these vehicles. And I think he just looks at Dad as the fun police. And I was thinking <laughs> I'd like to <laughs> and, and to some extent, I want him to have fun because he is only 20. But I also want him to, to think about how he spends his money and how he saves it. So I was considering and i'd like to see your advice on who to talk to but maybe hiring a financial planner that he can sit down with and i'll pay that and he can he can talk over what he's making what he's you know his his projected income he's going to be an engineer so he's going to make an, a nice nice wage when he gets out i'd just like to to see if you've got advice on who i can call or talk to 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 set up with him okay so first of all you described, uh, other than the fact that he's got a work ethic beyond belief, you described most everybody at his age. 
Correct. And, and, and I'm not I'm not criticizing him. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he's a great industrious kid working full time, going to school full time, taking a course of study that I couldn't make it through the first day of. <laughs> and, and so he's doing all these wonderful things. But this whole piece is missing about funding the future. Right. He's just living in today. And right. so I would say instead of hiring a financial planner, this is really bugging you about him. What if you consider doing what I call the mommy-daddy match? I don't know if you ever heard me talk about this. Yeah, I have. So if you were able to uh, tell him, you know, for every dollar you'll save and put in a Roth IRA, I'll match with a dollar up to whatever point you could afford to do it you may get him started with creating a habit. You know, if he goes to talk to a financial planner, it's typically going to be somebody that to him is just some old person talking about things that old people talk about. But More fun police. Yeah, so I found, I found with my kids that offering the match really got them doing it. And I think about my 30-year-old, who I started doing that with her when she got her first job as a hostess at a restaurant when she was 15. All the money that she has now at 30 that she really appreciates and the habit she built by me saying, okay, Rebecca, you save whatever you want to and whatever you save, I'm going to match. She kept coming to me with money. So instead no, no, of being, I'm, a, no, I'm worried I'm going to go broke. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you set an amount. Like, what what right. could you afford realistically to provide as a match for your son? Well, I think in a in a in a 12 month span, I could probably afford to give him ten thousand. Oh no, no, I'm not talking about that kind of money. <laughs> so oh. in your case, you'd offer him a match up to uh, three thousand dollars because he would okay. put up three thousand, you'd put three thousand, and instantly he's got six. Because six okay. is the max he can put in a Roth IRA. Okay. And so that's, that's the idea of creating a habit. The other question for you, the place he works third shift, do they have a 401k? They do, and I finally talked him into contributing, so he's contributing into that as well. Well, you're acting like he's not doing anything. He's doing something. Well, no, I just look at a 20-year-old with two German sports cars, one yeah. German sports car, one German sedan. Okay, and so he could have gotten the whole sports car thing <laughs> out of his system now or when he's at middle age. So maybe right. he'll go through it twice. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and later he'll say, gosh, I probably shouldn't have spent that money. But I think you, if you give him the nudges in the right direction and the match is a positive way of doing this, Maybe he will develop these habits that you'd love for him to have, because he already is a very responsible person in how he lives his life, just maybe not yet how he handles his money. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget. 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Tom's with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Tom, your purchase of a new home has triggered a decision line for you. Tell me what decision you're faced with. What's going on? Yeah, I'm uh, in a little bit of a pickle, and I got hit by the housing storm uh, out in the great northwest. And if you're familiar with it, uh, great. If not, uh, you you literally walk into a house, you have about a 15-minute showing, and uh, before you leave, you have to make an offer, otherwise you lose the house. <laughs> yeah, and the offers um, can get bid up, and you have to write yeah. letters to the owners to convince them you'll love exactly. the house as much as they do and all that. Yeah. yeah. So me and my wife wanted to upgrade, and we did. We walked into a house. We both fell in love with it. 45 minutes, or depending on who you talk to, my wife says we looked at it for 45 minutes. I say 15 minutes, but in either case, we didn't look at it very long. And by the end of the end of the night, we had an offer in, and it was accepted. <laughs> and we still have our, you know, we still had our existing house, so we were upgrading to an existing house. And now I'm in a pickle because I have two houses. Right. No fun. And my my wife doesn't know. We don't know what to do with the, with the, the old house uh, that we have. I um, mean, if you should so sell it or maybe turn it into a rental it. or something? Exactly, exactly. All right, I I'll mean, tell you how you make that decision. Please. The, the home that you have moved from, yes. would it also feed into this frenzy? Um, it would feed into the frenzy for sure. Uh, we could sell it in probably a, you know a week's time at very very high premiums for sure. All right. How about compared to what you paid for it? Um, we paid about one hundred and seventy five for it, and we could probably get four hundred and twenty five for you it. Sell it. Uh, six, you sell it. Sixteen years. You got to sell it. The reason okay. you have to sell it. I, I always say, don't make decisions just based on tax reasons. But this right. is an exception. Because if you sell the house now, yep. you pocket the gain tax-free. Yep. If you keep the property and turn it into a rental, eventually yep. all that gain becomes what's known as embedded gain, and you have to pay tax on all that gain that you would not have had to pay tax on otherwise at a later date when you go to sell the property. So a rental property, uh, taking a a personal residence, principal residence, and you move on, turning it into a rental property works great if the value of the property has not stepped up any appreciable amount from when you bought it. In your case, it's a slam dunk. You do that thing where people put in the frenzied offers in minutes, and you sell that thing, take your gains tax-free, and be done with it. If later at some future date it makes sense for you to buy another property as a rental property, market changes, then you do it. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.